Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Mount Vigil podcast. I'm Blaine. And I'm Anthony. And we are interrupting our flow because you have asked us to. And this project exists to serve the purposes of Jesus on the earth. So we want to postpone a second conversation on the book that I have coming out to address some pastoral worldview theological questions around a time of widespread crisis. I'm curious, Anthony, coming into this conversation, just your mental, emotional state, how do you feel beginning a conversation about war and war that involves Israel and Palestine Mm. and all that that implies? I feel surprisingly calm given how triggering and divisive all those things can be. I'm excited to get into it. I think we can do it in a a gentle and generous and open-hearted way. One thing I'll say, your comment just now that we are having this conversation because you asked for it. This is true. We've gotten some emails asking us to have a conversation about Israel and, and what's happening. But... For me personally, the real motivation for this conversation began when our our mutual friend Jason and I were at the cigar club having one of my new favorite cigars, which is the Steve Saka Meat Lovers Beef Stick. Horrible name, amazing cigar, by the way. But we were both smoking that, talking about church life together. Jason co-leads the house church that meets in my house. And the more that we process, the more that my heart is so full of desire for our people, the people that we do life with, that it would go well for them and that they would be faithful to Jesus through times in which there are so many forces pulling us away from faithfulness. So what's really on my heart is our people, which isn't to say I don't care about everyone else in the world listening. I love you and I'm glad that you're here for this, but I hope it's actually informative to you, you being people who aren't part of my church, that we're actually making this first and foremost for our people. We're not trying to change the whole world. We're not trying to reach as many people as possible, so much as the people that God's given us. And just having a small small in scale conversation with a handful of people, the handful of people that we do life with and the handful of people that listen to this podcast. It's so important to remember. Our goal is to be transformed into the image of Christ and to make it on earth as it is in heaven. And then as we engage that in our relational world, our goal for you is that you would be transformed into the image of Jesus. You have exclusive allegiance to Jesus and that it would be on earth as it is in heaven in your kingdom. What I like to tell people sometimes I pray for them is, I just pray that everywhere that your will is done, God's will is done. Mm. And so if you're a student and your will is your schedule and your relational world and a bedroom, great. I pray that in that kingdom, it's everything is the way God wants it to be, that it's a prophetic image of the kingdom to come. If you have a family and you're a mom and you have kids, God bless you. And our prayer is that where your will is done in your parenting, in the management of a household, in your work, that the will of Jesus would be done. It would be a prophetic display of the kingdom to come. So that is the energizing force of this conversation. And we know actually that navigating times of crisis is very difficult for all kinds of reasons that we will get into. But because not just war in general, but the nation of Israel and its relationship with the United States is uniquely triggering And I can't tell you how much I wanted to get into, you know, etiology and where did these forces come from? I really wanted to get into it. I felt like it wouldn't be helpful as I started preparing notes, like how did the bond between those two nations become what it is? It hasn't always been that way. Nevertheless, we are the heirs of a complex history. And because that's true... And because a lot of what lives in our flesh that is disordered comes out under pressure, a triggering event is going to be extra complex to manage. 
And because that's true, we're going to start with a centering practice of just getting our eyes on Jesus out of, you guessed it, the apostolic prayer from Ephesians 3. So I'll work through this and then just add in some instructions for your heart because the best possible thing in grounding your own body is to anchor it in Jesus. His prayer begins this way. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Jesus, we do. Heavenly Father, we do. Holy Spirit, we do. We acknowledge you as Lord. We get down before you. If you are able and you're not driving a car and you can actually get on your knees before God, don't forget C.S. Lewis and the screw tape letters. We are animals and what we do with our bodies affects our souls. So I would highly encourage you to do that. I can't because of the way that my chair is oriented relative to my microphone. But I was before this podcast. We kneel before you and acknowledge you as Lord of the universe. And we say our family identities have been replaced by the identity of belonging through Jesus Christ to the triune God. Our family designation is no longer Blaine Eldridge, but it is Blaine who is in Christ. That, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Lord Jesus, strengthen us with your power. Holy Spirit, fill us in our innermost places that the life of God yielding the fruit of the Spirit would come out in our thoughts, come out in our bodies and our defaults, and that by following Jesus, by serving him as Lord, Christ would be dwelling in us. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that comprehending Jesus is something that happens as the global body of Christ against across time and across space. We want to have strength with all of the saints together to comprehend your love that goes beyond what knowledge can attain. So, Lord Jesus, Let us together as the body, knowing that we are connected all the way into history and all the way around the planet as one body, enlighten our hearts, illuminate our inner being to understand the depth of your love, to be moved by the reality that you love us, you love the world, you are motivated by love, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord Jesus, fill us. Fill us to overflowing. We need more of God working its way out in every domain of our lives. We need our imaginations, our thought life, our technology, our work, our cars to be full with the knowledge of God, overflowing with the fullness of the presence of Jesus. So come and fill us, fill our work, fill our bodies. Uh, fill our presuppositions. We allow you, Holy Spirit, to do a work in us and to hold up Jesus that we can see him and serve him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. I needed that. That was, yeah, I could have I <laughs> hung out in there personally a while longer, just kept rolling. End of podcast. Now, where are we going? You had a few kind of big buckets that are really important. What are they? Yeah, some of the buckets, some of the beats that I think we'll hit in this conversation. One, a conversation about propaganda and cognitive warfare, seeing those things as an expression of spiritual warfare, and talking about what's at stake in this conversation. I think one of the basic theses of this conversation is that what's at stake isn't that you have the right opinion that I have the right opinion, that we accurately predict what's going to happen next, that we take a stance on who bombed that hospital 
or on how this happened. That's not what's at stake, just being factually, informationally correct. What's at stake is our souls. And what's happening to us, regardless of where we're at, is that all the messages of the world that we're allowing in are shaping our souls. Another big beat, I think we can talk briefly without getting too much into it, um, Israel and the spiritual people of Israel and the, the, the nation state of Israel and the Jewish people and Christians and Christian dispensationalism, perhaps a little bit, and Genesis 12.3, things like that. Yes. We're not going to create a systematic theology or tell you what to think, but I think there are some ways that we can maybe depressurize and disentangle some of those ideas. And finally, what does discipleship to Jesus look like in a season of war and in a world in which there's probably more to come, whether or not it's just the slow grind of the next thing, the next thing on the news that everyone cares about, or whether it's World War III or anything in between, what does discipleship to Jesus look like in such a world? What else is on the list? I love it. If we make it through those points, because we do have some time constraints, friends, we're we going do. to help you, uh, people of kindred, help you, Mount Vigil audience, Lord willing, as much as we can in about 50 minutes. Uh, so those buckets seem good to me. We're just going to skin these things. Take us in, Ant-Man. Okay, I'll kick it off with a quote from a person we've mentioned before, Edward Bernays. I'll just read... I've kind of edited down these quotes, but they're from the first three chapters of the book Propaganda. Mm -hmm. He's related to Freud. He's his nephew. He was powerfully shaped by watching early psychoanalysis in the unconscious mind. He, following the Second World War, came back to the United States with an idea. Basically, how much can we shape people without them knowing it through machines like marketing and storytelling and false meaning making? And he gave birth to the modern discipline of marketing, but not only that. So That's this a is a great his summary. Book. The other statement to make about this book is that he's coming from the perspective that propaganda is neutral and that it's mostly good. It can't be used for evil but that it's a necessary tool for organizing large groups of people. So if every single person in a given country or whatever kind of slice, a state, a, a town even, if every single person had their own sense of reality, and if every option, whether it be products, ideologies, allegiances, and so on, if every option was completely available to all of us and we had to sit through it all, we couldn't. So propagandists help society by actually... Chapter one is called Organizing Chaos. By organizing chaos. Who defeats chaos? Jesus. Jesus. Who brings order and shalom and structure? The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. Edward Bernays would say the propagandists do this. Right. He'd say modern nation states need to, and the tool they use is propaganda. Nation states, universities, companies, marketing, PR. So the, the basic idea here... Special interest groups, yes. Exactly. He lists special interest groups, and he's like, this is a fraction of what's out there helping us organize chaos. And to steal our own thunder, the idea is that propaganda, cognitive warfare, these things are spiritual warfare. These forces are shaping our souls, shaping our, our corporate souls and our individual souls. So here's a couple quotes. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed. Our minds are molded. Our tastes are formed. Our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. I would add, and, and spirits. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society. Our invisible governors are, in many cases, unaware of the identity of their fellow members in the inner cabinet or of the spiritual powers that they are actually serving. That's obviously my commentary. I'll, I'll read a little more and then we can break this down. 
So this is now from chapter three, actually, the new propagandists. Mm-hmm. Who are the men who, without our realizing it, give us our ideas? Tell us whom to admire and whom to despise, what to believe about the ownership of public utilities, about the tariff, about the price of rubber, about the Dawes plan, about immigration, who tell us how our houses, houses should be designed, what furniture we should put into them, what menus we should serve on our table, what kind of shirts we must wear, what sports we should indulge in what plays we should see, what charities we should support, what pictures we should admire, what slang we should affect, what jokes we should laugh at. There are invisible rulers who control the destinies of millions. It is not generally realized to what extent the words and actions of our most influential public men are dictated by shrewd persons operating behind the scenes, nor, what is still more important, the extent to which our thoughts and habits are modified by authorities. You might say by archons. Woof. What does that trigger for you? Let's try and unpack what he just said. What Bernays was observing is that in every nation, in the biblical sense, in every society, there is an unseen government. Both there's a spiritual government and then there's just a hidden human government that we believe is empowered too often by powers that are hostile to Christ. And what this unseen government can do is to influence, sometimes in a dramatic way, the thought life of a population over time. And if you've never studied, because who's ever studied, a successful propaganda campaign, I can't even tell you. I hardly know where to begin with the brilliance of their design and how reliable they are in producing effects. So I remember reading about the war in the Pacific and the disclosure of images related to the sale of war bonds and the exact science of what stories they needed to feed the American public at what time to keep the money moving and the recruits moving the way they needed to. All right, so just think about that for a second. No one knew, and by the time, you know, propaganda made the world vulnerable to postmodern theory in addition to a number of other things. You know, Jean Baudrillard's essay, The Gulf War, Is It Really Happening? It's an old essay, guys. It's the Gulf War. And he said, all we're getting is this, he called it a procession of images, building a story that controls outcomes, that kind of turns the needle of public opinion over time. But you read about World War II, guys, and... There, it was very rare that they would release an image of dead allied Marines. But in an emergency, when they needed to hike the money and they had enough people because new recruits would go down, money goes up if you show your citizens dead, they would feed out an image of Marines, you know, floating in the Pacific surf at Tarawa or some such place. So the power of people who understand the discipline of propaganda is incredible. I want to say one other thing. I'll try to say it briefly, which is that when you start talking about propaganda, the most influential, arguably, under certain circumstances and absolute worst postmodern philosopher who the economist called this man the ghost at the banquet of the modern world, Michel Foucault pops up terrible person, guys. Just You can just call a spade a spade. By the end of his life, he was running around San Francisco trying to give AIDS to as many people as he could. All right. It's just how his life ended. He wrote an essay saying that the best way to die was in a violent orgy because you would finally throw off the tyranny of truth. This is a man who said that, and he's, I can't tell you how influential Foucault is in certain forms of uh, progressive projects. But he said in the past, nation states managed themselves by policing bodies. And so you would lock up criminals, you would publicly execute offenders. His book on this is called Discipline and Punish. And he said, but in our world, we're going to police ideas. The whole idea that the personal is the political is a way of saying that we can form ideological police states, which exist on places like Facebook. And they exist on both sides, guys, because it's so demonic. Jesus's project is the transformation of the human being from the inside out. 
an ideological police state works by controlling the person from the inside out. And I had a conversation with a friend just recently who said, it's wild with this war, this conflict, this crisis developing to watch the spiritual police state that was alive and well, you know, in every election cycle or during COVID appear almost instantaneously on social media again. On both sides, you will be shamed back into position if you say certain things. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say the power that you are dealing with is beyond any human agenda. When you're looking at the control of the heart of humanity, you're looking at a spiritual project motivated ultimately by rebellious spiritual powers. Mm. My next quote on this subject emphasizes what you were just saying. I have the weird habit of collecting PDFs. I think the most underrated part of the internet is that it is full of PDFs, whether it be, in this case, state-sponsored research projects, strategic resources, academic papers on weird theological questions. I have like a, a collection of hundreds of these. One that I you found- You so would. I just got to say that so you- <laughs> You're so weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One that I found during COVID, actually, NATO hired the think tank to do a research project on cognitive warfare. I will include a link to this set of resources in the show notes. Also, I'll, I will try to find a link to the PDF of Brene's book as well. And I can't encourage you enough to read the first three chapters, at least. It, it's, it's revelatory. We skipped a lot. So here's the quote from this cognitive warfare essay or research done by NATO. And helpfully, the header is trust is the target. It says cognitive warfare pursues the objective of undermining trust, public trust in electoral processes, trust in institutions, allies, politicians. Therefore, the individual becomes the weapon. Here's the most important sense, I think, here. While the goal is not to attack what individuals think, but rather the way they think, it has the potential to unravel the entire social contract that underpins societies. The goal is not to attack what individuals think, but rather the way they think. We'll come back to this point. It is natural to trust the senses, to believe what is seen and read, but the, dem the democratization of automated tools and techniques using AI, no longer requiring a technological background, enables anyone to distort information and to further undermine trust and open societies. The point of this quote isn't that we think some liberal, you know, secular state is the goal. So think kingdom, right? The use of fake news, deep fakes, Trojan horses, and digital avatars will create new suspicions, which anyone can exploit. It applies to trust among individuals as well as groups, political alliances, and societies. Think a church, the church. Trust in particular among allies is a targeted vulnerability. It goes on, I'll stop there. So here's why I'm emphasizing so much this point that the goal is not to attack what individuals think, but rather the way they think. Your soul is being shaped by all the messages coming at you, whether it's in defense of Israel, in defense of Hamas, in defense of anything else, whatever the, the media institutions you're interacting with, the, the social media institutions, the goal if we're kind of zooming out and viewing all of this as spiritual warfare, is designed to shape your soul. So it actually doesn't matter what side you take or what opinion you establish. Maybe it does in some way, but what matters more is the way you think being shaped. Is the way that you think looking more like the mind of Christ, more like we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh, but only according to Christ, as Paul says. Is the way that you think being shaped by the gospel um, being shaped by a kingdom ethic, by love, by devotion and worship of, of Yahweh, or is it being shaped in emotional reaction that increases the permeability of your soul and the powers and the world, the world theologically speaking? Yes. And if I can just jump in, none of us is immune to that shaping power. So important to accept that you are being shaped by this. And this is one of the main reasons that I have submitted on purpose my content to Jesus and that I read and research in community is because I am not immune to the shaping power of stories, of propaganda, 
And I want my imagination to be transformed to be the imagination of Christ. Our boy Dallas Willard, right? He said that the test of the, one of the acid tests of the development of the disciple of Jesus is if they spontaneously respond to their enemies in love. And we have made, I'll say around my kitchen table, a marked attempt, a real attempt to pray for God's mercy on the perpetrators of injustice when they pop up, you know, whether they're in our city or it's a neighbor being picayune about a border dispute or some international act of terrorism. I loved reading Bob Eckblad's, you guys know this already, A New Kingdom Manifesto, where he points out that you're vulnerable to national idolatry if you're praying for the troops of one nation and not the troops of another nation for God to have mercy on them. That hit home pretty hard, actually, because I didn't grow up praying that God would have mercy on ISIS or on Al-Qaeda back in the day. You remember those days? We're going back to the early aughts. Um, and didn't have you know prayer meetings for the revelation of God to his enemies that I would sit at the banquet table of Jesus with people who had been suicide bombers. Let them get into the kingdom. God, have mercy on their souls. They don't know what they're doing. It takes a lot of work to get there. And you won't get there. I won't get there by submitting our content feeds, our news sources, our stream of stories to the world. Hmm. That's good. The way that I actually wanted to introduce the propaganda subject, I'll just go ahead and drop this image. I think propaganda is magic. And I view it, my personal definition is that it's state-sponsored magic designed to enchant and dialectically drive human populations toward ends desired by the powers. And a really weird example of this, a game I've never played (laughs) or have any interest in, the game Magic the Gathering, it's this, this very famous very influential card game where you're playing cards and it's like Dungeons and Dragons, but with cards. And I don't know, that's my best understanding of it. There's a card in that game called propaganda. It's a, it's a skill or whatever. And the, the rules are, it says creatures can't attack you unless the controller pays two for each creature he, he or she controls that's attacking you. So it's this defensive card. This is massively nerdy, but it might actually be helpful. It's this defensive card that I can play. That means if someone wants to send their creatures, their monsters to, to attack me, they have to pay the tax of using propaganda, and that allows them to scale their efforts against me. I love how nerdy that is. It's so nerdy. It's but, an illustration yeah. of a reality, which is that propaganda makes it harder to move against the current, markedly harder. One last thought on propaganda. Do you know where the word comes from? Not just the Latin propagate, but like... But where's the word come from? Okay, so propaganda has been about spiritual war since the beginning, and it's been used since time immemorial. But the word itself comes from actually the Catholic Church in the post-Reformation. And in the post-Reformation, or in the counter-Reformation, I should say, the Catholic Church established, they established this group called the Congregatio de Propaganda Fide, which is the Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith. And it was a group of cardinals, I'm not sure what the whole story is. It was basically a mission-sending agency within Catholicism to send people out into the world to propagate the Catholic faith, specifically in response to the Reformation, right? So, that's literally where the word propaganda comes from. It started there, and then it became secularized, and then it took on the negative overtones that it has now. The point in bringing that history is not really a critique of the Catholic Church, though it is sad to see propaganda beginning with internal divisions within the larger Christian people of, of God, which is just meaningful and sad. It's very tragic. It's to further emphasize that propaganda is fundamentally about spiritual warfare. Dr. Heiser, God rest his soul, says that spiritual warfare, the territory in spiritual war is the human heart. And the goal is to colonize more of the human heart. And propaganda is simply rhetoric at scale attempting to do that. Okay. So let's pause on this point and say, 
if you want to respond exactly the way that Jesus would respond to the situation involving Israel right now, the first step is going to be acknowledging that you've been colonized by the hostile powers. You, there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions. And by all of us repenting and asking to see the world and to feel about the world the way Jesus does. And so it looks like this. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I acknowledge that I have not stewarded my mind. I have not guarded my heart above all else. I have read articles and had conversations and beheld images that have opened my soul to the devices of the world and the flesh and the devil. I repent. I repent. I Pray that you would cleanse me with your blood now, that you would cleanse my imagination, that you would cleanse my whole body, my very tissues, from the presence of stories and images and propaganda that's opposed to Christ. And I keep the work of Christ between me and the world now, and I claim the cross to disarm the power that has been given in my household to Satan and his kingdom to the rebellious powers by sinning in the way that I operate in the world. We all repent, Lord Jesus, as your people. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would show us, Jesus, that we would be able to turn ourselves to you and that beholding your face, reflecting the glory of God, being transformed into your image. We would be able to display the wisdom of God to the world and to respond in a way that is so astonishing to current events. It makes people ask, who are you? How'd you become that way? What kingdom do you live in? Holy Spirit, show us Jesus as the anchor stone of our engagement with the world. Mm, So good. The further encouragement in terms of what do we do about this that I would offer is that in the church, in just the small group of people that you have committed to doing life with and pursuing Jesus alongside, we are all supposed to shape each other's consciousnesses. So rather than opening ourselves up to all the rhetoric of the world, here's a passage from Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as the day of the return of Christ and the judgment of all things and the the unveiling of all the secret thoughts and words and every deed done is weighed and judged in the light of Christ, as that day draws near, we are called to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So as a community, the counter- effort to propaganda, as we're calling it, the cognitive and spiritual warfare of the world, is to preach the gospel to each other and to come up with ways to stir up a desire for truth, goodness, and beauty, faith, hope, and love. That's really all it takes. Maybe some practical repentances like delete your social media accounts or meter your access to the news and things like that. But fundamentally, it happens in the corporate body of Christ where we stir each other up on the way. Yes. I'll also say, if you want to make it on earth as it is in heaven, it feels like a prompt out of what you just recommended, which is let's act on that and say, Holy Spirit, we give you just a second to say you get to be the master of our lives. So is there a channel open that I need to close? That's good. Is there a thing that I've said that I need to repent of? Inwardly, are there any people, are there any relationships that 
I need to go back and say, in person, in person, hey, really quick, I'm sorry for what I wrote on social media when you posted that. I was feeling really emotionally charged, but that's not what Jesus would have done. So I'm sorry I wrote back something that was incisive. I want to build you up in love. Lord Jesus, is there those three? Are there any channels? Like, is, is there a daily news podcast that the Holy Spirit is giving you a nudge? Just delete it off your phone. Just don't do it. Just listen to the Bible instead. Your life will get so much better. Mm. The first time I to, did basically a one-year fast of podcasts and only listened to the Bible changed my life so radically, <laughs> I can't even tell you. Um, and then are there any, is there anything inwardly I need to repent of? And then is there any damage that I've done that you are leading me to repair so that rather than sowing the destruction of the world, I would sow righteousness into my community? Good. Let's change tracks here and talk a little bit. Personally, I don't want to get in the weeds on this subject, but let's talk a little bit about what's helpful for the church, for our people, and our church called Kindred. What is helpful for our people in disambiguating, perhaps, the nation state of Israel, the spiritual people of Israel, the Jews, Christian allegiance, things like that. And I'm also interested in how we navigate what is called prophecy in the world. How are we holding this story of war in Israel? This isn't the Ukraine war. It's not war somewhere else in the world. This is war in Israel. What should a Christian think about this? What's going on? I'm asking you, so go oh, I'm literally going to model. I have so many ideas, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is I have a lot of thoughts on this. So, you know, very quick pause. Holy Spirit, We submit to you what we have limited time and what we most want is to bless the people who are listening to behold Jesus, is to bless Jason, Tim, Lori, just some of my favorite people on this planet. Um, Holy Spirit, what would be helpful to say about that? What comes up for you? Hmm. What comes up is... The simple desire, hope, and prayer for our people that we would be single of eye and pure of heart, and that we would approach all conversations and internal positions, opinions, and feelings, and loves, and passions, and allegiances, we would submit those to the fear of the Lord, so that we would take seriously that, I mean, Scripture is full of this language, that every word spoken will be held in account, that we will give an account for every word spoken, every thought, thunk, every action taken, that all of this matters. And what's at stake is our souls. This isn't like, or you will go to hell for the rest of your life or whatever else. This is just a practical reality that is unavoidable throughout the scriptures. And we want to be like Jesus. So all these conversations about this prophet on social media said, this is going to happen. And Genesis 12.3 says to Abraham, Yahweh says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So I guess I have to approve of everything the nation state of Israel does. And, and that creates a rift in our souls. And the more divided we are, the happier the enemy is and the less unified as an individual and as a member of the body we are. So for me, that can almost be enough to say, I pray for you, singleness of eye, that your vision would be Jesus, and that you would see all parties, all human beings involved, not according to the flesh, but according to Christ, and that you'd be pure of heart. That's so good. I feel, I think, the weightiness of the decline of the Western church. Mm. And... I was driving in this morning. I was thinking about... I, so I had a conversation recently, because this is what you do, on the different theories that I've read of why Josiah tried to stop Nico from aiding Assyria in a war against Babylon. 
And people really, it's weird. It's weird that his life ends that way. That he goes hand to hand with the incarnation of evil in the, in the valley of Megiddo and dies. But I think my favorite, the thing that seems most likely to me is that the reformist kings Hezekiah and Josiah know that their whole job is to preserve a remnant. Because when Sennacherib is besieging Jerusalem and the prophets find Hezekiah in the temple, he gets up and he doesn't say, men to the walls. He like puts a hand on their shoulder and goes, pray for the remnant that's going to get through this. Because he knows that God is going to preserve a remnant, and he also knows that Jerusalem and Judah have, are past the point of irreversible decline. Josiah knows the same thing. His basically whole job as a king is to preserve a few. And he succeeds because by the time you get to the book of Daniel, who are these men? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Like, these are the grandchildren of that generation who, are, who have been so formed by the reformists that they're faithful going through the Babylonian university system and they love Jesus. I mean, they love Yahweh, who's, you know, three in one in the second person is Jesus. You guys get what I'm saying. And I said, apart, I was thinking on the drive-in, apart from a major move of God that feels a little bit, I hope this doesn't sound bad, but sometimes that feels like the work right now when you're in a church moment that is ebbing, you know, Christianity ebbs and flows across time. Tide's kind of going out right now. And so it's like, man, the work is really to preserve the next generation, like preserve the faith in our time, reveal Jesus in our time and acknowledge. Because declined Christianity, going all the way back to declined medieval Christianity and even further back into the fall. I mean, I'm sorry, guys, I'll stop. But has created these expressions of Christianity that are a crisis of faith waiting to happen because they're missing so many pieces and there's so much fragmentation in the global body such that what does the modern nation state of Israel have to do with the story of God? How does it fit in? Is We don't have a ready answer for that. And I'll actually say, it's a complex question. Some parts, of, you know, sometimes when I address this question, I'm like, oh, this has a very straight answer. But I'm just kind of, I'm grateful for friends and community just to say, actually, there, there is nuance. I mean, some of the big things on the fact there's not a linear relationship between the Israel that you see having a national covenant with Yahweh in the Old Testament is not the exact same thing as the nation state now. But there are some complexities. And so... I just think my prayer is, man, even more than being able to navigate this moment, a crisis exposes the state of affairs inside the body of Christ. And in, I think that I feel personally for me and for my people, just this deep need to double down on, listen, the only safe place is all in and, oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy on and sustain us and make us into the kind of people who have been shaped by the church and the scriptures and the Holy Spirit such that we can see Israel at war and respond as if Jesus were here right now and had to comment on what was happening. That's what's top of mind for me, which doesn't get into actually any of how it works, but maybe we'd like to a bit. What are you thinking? <laughs> No, I don't want to get into it too much because I think it's more instructive to say it's okay to say that you don't know. It's okay to have some sensibility that the Eretz, the promised land of Jerusalem and Israel, the land itself has has maintained prophetic and covenantal significance in that the Jewish people, read Romans 9 through 11, are very dear to God's heart. And even the nation state of Israel, which... I personally see being just like any other nation state, like Babylon, nonetheless having potentially prophetic significance. But it's not my job. Using kind of dispensationalist tools, read through the Bible and try to come up with, here's my stance. Here's what's happening. The, the fact is, I don't know. What I do know is that Jesus is Lord. The kingdom is coming. And I am called to regard everyone according to Christ. 
and that there is nothing about the Bible, including Genesis 12.3, that mandates I condone violence. The kingdom isn't established with mass murder. And my, my only allegiance is with Jesus, and I see Jesus also in the women and children and innocents and vulnerable and the victims, and even the perpetuators of violence are victims. And so I see Jesus as being all in all in the end. Out of fear of the Lord, I'm not going to start taking sides. The Greek word that's translated faith, pistis, can faithfully be translated faith, trust, belief, and also allegiance. And I think I am called to a singular allegiance, which is to Jesus and his people, Jesus in his people. There are Christian Israelis, Christian Palestinians, and I'm not going to become an armchair strategist and tell people what to think and what's really happening. Yes. That's really good. Let's talk, let's shift and talk about, I want to say a few things on, I don't know if this is a just point or not, but on responding to the crisis involving Israel and Palestine as though it were any other crisis on the planet. Is that our last point or should we take five minutes and just offer an encouragement? Well, we'll end with encouragement, but go on. Okay. You said this, but I'm going to say it again. A listener just advised me. I got some great feedback recently, which was, you could repeat yourselves more often. (laughs) (laughs) You'll say things and you can slow down and say it again. Wonderful advice. Thank you. One of the things that I want to say is that now that you have been transferred, you've been, you're not your own, you've been bought with a price, the blood of Christ, you live in the kingdom of God, your family is the global body of Christ, okay? Over and above, exceeding all national allegiances, your people are the church. And by the way, that includes people in different church expressions that honestly, I think the difficult thing is that it includes some of the expressions, even personally, of Christianity that I find most distasteful. Guess what? I have preferences, guys. (laughs) And I have to work through submitting those to Jesus I will name no names. And, well, and just say, man, what is, how do I respond to the entire body of Christ as my nation, my family? Uh, how do I pray for Palestinian Christians, Israeli Christians? Talk about a minority. And how do I pr- appeal to the God who makes war cease from one end of the earth to the other? You know, it, it's just... What I love about Jesus is his ability to call a spade a spade and be like, violence is bad. Have you ever had to manage a conflict between your kids and realized how much nuance they can have where, (laughs) and you kind of have to like get them separate and then yes, we're addressing motive and it it has so many layers to it, but it's like, yeah. And then when you hit your sister, that was wrong. And there is such a temptation for people to define good and evil for themselves instinctively, you know, without thoroughly thinking it through, without submitting our ideas to Jesus, the butt comes so fast. And just say, no, guys, the Bible doesn't call bads goods. It does not do that. And so to perpetrate violence is bad. Wow, shocker from Mount Vigil today. The response of the people of God is, Lord Jesus, have mercy, intervene, uh, make the war stop, and also, in your judgment, be merciful. Be merciful, even on the perpetrators. I think that with nation states of any kind, we know that we make like the prophets who... If you don't think it's okay to call out the nation state that you're living in, even if you really like it, read literally any prophetic book that's in the Bible. <laughs> read any of them. Read First and Second Samuel and the rise of the prophet Samuel and 
uh, read Nathan's confrontation with David. David is a man who the Bible is going to say he accomplished the will of God for his generation. All right? I defy you to find um, a king who's going to get higher praise. I mean, besides maybe the other two I named. And yet, when he does not toe the line, he is rebuked by a prophet of God who says, I don't care who you are, murder is bad. I don't care who you are, it's not okay to oppress the vulnerable. And so part of the, you know, the political sensibility of the people of God being only a legion to Jesus is our ability to condemn the evil in all nation states and to call out what is good and be grateful to God for expressing his mercy through modern nation states. And it's so good. The only thing I'll add, I think, is also calling violence good, calling evil good, regardless of the reasoning process you're going through, does bring you under judgment. It is sin, in other words. And again, out of fear of the Lord, we should resist this tendency. The thing that's so innate to human nature that, to your point, we see it in our kids and toddlers, it's like, well, I hit him because he hit me. And even as a parent, I've had times where I kind of feel like, and that's fair. I mean, you, you got hit because you were doing that to them. So I guess you got what was coming to you, you know? It's a very deep human instinct. Well, it's not human. It's inhuman tendency that's, you know, native since the fall. It's not just that it's wrong, but that it's wrong in a way that you are morally culpable. So we are actually unnecessarily, by taking offense on others' accounts, we are unnecessarily walking ourselves into a place of having sinned. And that requires confession and repentance. And again, everything will be held accounted for, that you will be accountable for everything that you've said and thought. It's weird. I'm not normally doing kind of the, the hellfire type preaching, I guess, but it's definitely on my mind for the church because I found myself susceptible to it. The messages of the world will shape our passions and lead us to condone things that are not of God. It's so good. And the word satanic as an adjective, my general definition of it is grasping for oneself our vision of the good when God was going to give that good for you anyways. So the seraph who fell, Satan, he was already a god. He was already glorious. He, he already had some aspect of the divine, and yet he wanted to become the most high god. And Adam and Eve wanted to become like God, and they grasped it for themselves when it was their destiny to begin with. And we want the heavenly Jerusalem to be established. We want Jerusalem to come down, right? As we just talked about at the end of Revelation, we want the union of heaven and earth. But it's, it becomes satanic when we attempt to immunitize the eschaton, when we attempt to realize of our own powers in grasping ways the good. And so the good must be received from God, and we can partner with Jesus in, in pursuing it and establishing it. But when we attempt to do it in ways that are in rebellion against him, that's satanic. In other words, war doesn't bring heaven. We're not ever going to get to heaven through war. Yes. I feel so much conviction because of what you're saying. Thank you, Ant-Man. And I, I do want to make like one slightly more concrete example, which is that over the course of this conflict and over the course of time, I've experienced both sides of this because I'm grateful to say that I have friends of multiple political and ideological leanings, mm. and we're all working to be transformed to Jesus. It is a challenging gift. And so you know that you're dealing with idolatry, with eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. When you say something bad happened and the first thing they do is come back with an excuse. And I've watched this on both sides where when someone were like, whoa, did you see the bombing attacks in Israel? And there's a certain group of people who will come right back and say, but don't you know what Israel has done in Palestine? And I'm like, whoa. I, a bit, I know a bit, but I wasn't actually condoning anything that that nation had done by saying it was bad for their people to be killed. This bad, okay? Um, and so a bombing attack is a bad thing, but I saw, I experienced in church, okay, um, with my people who I love 
And I'm so Wait, glad to say it wasn't me. It wasn't you. <laughs> the same thing, yeah. right? And I I have been guilty of this too where someone was expressing frustration about the nation state of Israel and what came right back was but don't you know? Meaning their bad actions are justified by some other principle that's higher than the moral grain of the universe established by God. There's mm. no such thing. And it's like, no, I wasn't saying that. I was not saying that. I'm saying that if a modern nation state acts like Pharaoh, becomes an empire in the biblical sense, which Judah is doing, I mean, the United Kingdom of Israel does it, where Solomon's Pharaoh by the end of his story, Rehoboam is Pharaoh, and then Manasseh is Pharaoh, Ammon is Pharaoh. The list goes on and on. When a nation state becomes like the archetype of Egypt, that's bad. It's bad. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, has the modern nation state of Israel done bad things? Yes. Full stop. And the ability of the people of God to say that and then to pray that God would have mercy and to unemmesh ourselves. Political enmeshment is where you don't know where you end and the nation or political party begins. We want to be wedded with Christ and differentiated from all other allegiances so that when someone critiques Palestine, they're not critiquing us. When someone critiques Israel, they're not critiquing us. And we can respond by the Holy Spirit. It's so good. I actually wrote out some of these. I wanted to like help untangle the emotional and mental web around this. So I'm just going to read a little bit of like how we can become more pure of heart and single of eye and avoid some of these errors. So if you look at the nation state of Israel and see things that look like Babylon as an oppression and injustice, you don't have to therefore become allegiant to Hamas and condone or excuse violence. It sounds obvious when you say it, and yet it's happening throughout the church currently. If you look at Palestinians and you see the victim and the oppressed, and you feel cognitive dissonance because you think you must therefore choose the side of Hamas and condone or excuse violence in these rhetorical battles, you don't have to do that. It's not required. You can open your hands and just say, Lord Jesus, and I've got to have mercy on me, have mercy on us. And if you are a Christian with more dispensationalist tendencies, whether or not you would actually use that word, and you read Genesis 12, 3, which says, again, to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. This verse is actually so key. That one verse alone, just so you know, is like practically the reason, at least biblically speaking, that people feel that they have to therefore excuse anything Israel does. I was, I was raised this way, by the way. So... If you read that verse and you think, this still matters to me, I should bless Abraham, and that means bless the Jewish people and still honor their place as the chosen people of God, and you know, again, Romans 9 through 11, that's real. That doesn't mean that you therefore have to become allegiant to the nation state of Israel and condone and excuse violence. It's simply unnecessary, and again, it unnecessarily leads us into, in subtle or extreme ways, destruction. So those are all things to repent of, and we can, as followers of Christ and as people with the Holy Spirit and discernment, step outside of that whole swirl and simply pray, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, grant us peace, and repent for our own portion of brokenness and sin in the world, and again, be allegiant with Jesus. And if we have a sense of national identity, it's the ethnos that is Christ, the people, the church, the people of God. I had a Hebrews passage I wanted to read. I don't even want to commentate that much on it, but it was helpful for me. And it's Hebrews 12, 12 through 29, but I'm going to cut a few verses out for time's sake. So it's 12 through 15 and 22 through 29. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. I will commentate. The root of bitterness is really what drove me here. 
all those things that we just said you don't have to do, all those divisions internally, to me, are a root of bitterness. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Moving on. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I'll commentate again. What is the blood of Abel? It is people trying to grasp like a chosenness in God and trying to grasp the good through means of violence when Yahweh was giving himself anyways. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, including the kingdoms of men, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire.